regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold a long term in depth conversation with our practitioners, researchers, to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Shruti Bart, who leads product management and marketing at Roxette. Prior to Roxette, she led product management for Arco Cloud with a focus on AI, IoT, and blockchain. Briefly, she was the vice president of marketing at Traveler System, where she dropped the startup's rapid growth from pre-launch to hundreds of customers and a successful acquisition. Prior to that, she was responsible for launching VMware's virtual sandbox and has less engineering teams at HP and IBM. Shruti has a Bachelor in Computer Science and Engineering and then an MBA from UCLA Anderson. So Shruti, it is my great pleasure to have you on the show. Hi, James. Thank you so much for having me. Fabulous. By way of introduction, while doing the research for our conversation, I believe that you grew up in EDA mm-hmm. and then you studied engineering and computer science back in the thousands. Can you briefly share about your upbringing, your interest in engineering growing up, and your overall university experience? Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people like to say that they went into engineering because it was their passion and they were following their passion. In my case, it wasn't It wasn't until after I started studying engineering that I discovered I really enjoyed it. It was just in general, I had the sense that I was good at tech. I enjoyed tech and I just went into engineering to explore that. And that's all I did. I think the learning that I took away from that was more than waiting for this passion in my life, I just went exploring and I found it. So yeah, I think the whole university experience was amazing. It was very, I think, especially in India at the time, computer science was something that a lot of people, a lot of very smart people were taking on. So it was a very competitive environment, but also very fun environment, especially if you like engineering and computer science. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing a little bit of the context on that. And I guess you learn a lot of the useful skill set throughout your, especially from the engineering part of you, right? And after you finishing your undergrad, you launched right into your career as a software engineering. And I believe that for the first four years of your career, you worked at two very organizations, namely speaking, Hewlett Packard and IBM. Do you recall any valuable lessons you learned from those opportunities? Yeah, I think just choosing to go there was an interesting choice because at the time, I remember a lot of the recruiting on campus was around services and consulting companies. What helped was very early on, I had this passion for product development. So I did not go into a services or consulting company and I chose to go to a product development company. And HP, I think at the time was a great choice for me personally, learned a lot. And if I remember those early years, The one thing that I took away was this feeling that even very early in my career, I could make change happen. For example, I remember this one time at HP, we were relying on a remote team. All the hardware equipment was across the ocean. 
So every time there was a failure, somebody had to go reboot the hardware and we couldn't do it. So we had to wait for somebody to wake up on the other side of the world and go reboot the hardware. And that was a terrible experience. I managed to go get funding. It was like multi-million dollar funding, get the hardware equipment ordered for us. And the only way to make that happen was to roll up my sleeves, say, I'm going to set it up. I'm going to be the storage admin. I knew nothing about being a storage admin, but I said, hey, if you give us the equipment, I'll go learn how to be one and I'll go set it up. And that's what ended up working. So I think the most lesson I took away from there was to really take a step back and say, what is stopping you from doing something and systematically remove those roadblocks? It's actually possible to move really big mountains. In In that case, it was, I had to go get funding. I had to learn how to manage the storage. I had to learn how to set up the hardware. As a software engineer, it wasn't something I knew. But saying it's okay that there are going to be challenges and let's go take on those roadblocks, I think that was the thing that really worked for me early in my days. Yeah, it sounds like you be able to cultivate like a sense of ownership and identify any potential bottlenecks and drop your sleeve and go fix them. That's like the key things. And then from a more like technical learnings, I suppose working at this company, you could definitely learn a thing or two about engineering best practices, I suppose. Yeah. Of course, do you recall any takeaways from being a software engineer in those larger companies? Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things, I still use that today in my career. One of the things I took away was don't be afraid to experiment. Don't be afraid to automate things, especially if you're automating your own job. That's the best thing an engineer can do. There's sometimes I still hear people afraid that, oh, will I lose my job if I automate away the things that I'm doing on a day-to-day basis? No, you don't. You only get promoted. And that's what I learned. So I'll give you an example. Back at HP, one my very early days, I was doing a lot of QA and testing. And one of the things I had to do was different operating systems on many different servers so I could go test against this very large matrix of servers and operating systems and see how does it, the software work on all these different hardware and OS combinations. And what did I do? I heard about this new thing called VMware that was just coming around the corner. And I decided to virtualize all of these things and automate how the operating system is maintained on these things. And I just made my whole test matrix fully automated by virtualizing everything. And the thing that was taking people many months to do, I was able to virtualize and then do that in a week. So I basically automated away my own job. But mm-hmm. instead of losing my job, I just got promoted because instead of taking many months, you can now do it in a week. So. That's, I think, one valuable lesson and that kind of experimentation and constantly trying to automate my own work is what led me to VMware later in my career because I was one of the early users of VMware. Yeah. Yeah. So learning about that, that automation capabilities and to remove certain manpower and allow the software to take over is really important. Thanks for sharing that context about how to get involved with VMware and then that become later on pretty important throughout your career. Just on one other quick note. So this is probably the early days of Networking starch and virtual cloud. Curious, like what was the sort of the state of the art? You know, this is during the mid two thousands. What was generally like cloud adoption and how that look like? Yeah, just revisiting time for listeners who are not familiar with that context. Yeah. Oh, back then cloud wasn't really a thing yet. It was all data center technologies. What I worked on at HP was mostly storage hardware. A storage array. And yes, it was called a virtual storage array. So state of the art was this thing from HP called Enterprise Virtual. And they said, oh, we're going to virtualize the storage. 
And that was, I think, the very first step because from there, then you virtualize servers and then from there it became the cloud. But yeah, it was the early days, the days when you had to go sit in the data center, freeze while you're trying to go reboot things. The hardware constantly failed on you and you had to constantly go in and pull the disks. And the days when I would have these orange cables that I'm staring into to see if they still work. There was a lot of hardware back in the day. And today I really appreciate how the cloud has changed everybody's lives because I work with people in my team who've never seen a server. They've never touched a server. And that is amazing that today we can build all the software and never have to touch a server, touch a storage array. Yeah, thanks for sharing a lot of that anecdote. So circling back into your career, around 2008, you moved to the US to pursue an MBA at UCLA and a school of management. And I believe that during your time at business school, you also work in product marketing at Cisco and product management at Comcast. How could you describe your overall experience in business school? I would say it was one of the most transformative experiences, but also the thing I learned was that if you really hustle during school, you learn so much more. And for example, both of the things you talked about were actually internships. So while I was studying, which, you know, full-time MBA is pretty demanding, I was also doing, there was one summer internship that everybody does, but I did a second internship on the side, which I found on my own. And I went and did this purely for experience. And what I ended up doing was I walked into this company and I told them, I will do product management for free. You don't have to pay me a thing. I just want to learn. So that's how it started. And within, I think, two weeks, they came up and said, no, this is great. We really want to pay you. And we want to support you as a student. So not only did I learn, they also helped pay off some of my student debt. The thing I learned there was how to really work hard, hustle, and working my way through school was a completely different experience for me. Of course, you know, as part of the business school education, I also learned a lot of business fundamentals. I learned that while I enjoy technology, my passion is really the business of technology and really understanding how do you build technology that solves problems? How do you monetize that technology? How do you take that to market? So that's where my engineering kind of pivoted into more of a business side. I'm sure that. So you, the job that you like study school and also doing internship on the side. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like, how was your, your schedule look like during business school? <laughs> yeah, I was quite crazy. The schedule was pretty much like Anderson has the UCLA has the quarter system. So the quarters are very short. And as you're going through school, you're picking a lot of extra classes because the way they do it is there isn't a limit on the number of classes that you can sit in on. And it just felt like these two years where apart from the coursework I had to do, there were these amazing courses that I could sit in on. So I sat in on a lot of extra courses. I was also teaching assistant for the second year. I was a teaching assistant for a bunch of first years. And apart from that, I was also doing this job on the side and recruiting. I think the thing that took up most of the time was you. I was graduating in a recession. This was in 2010. It was in the middle of a recession. So I really had to make sure I had a job by the time I graduated. Yeah. And a lot of my time, apart from doing all of this, was also full-time on-campus recruiting or off-campus recruiting, as the case was in my case. Yeah. And another part you raised in your previous answer was that you shift from early poly technology to the business of technology. First of all, like, why did it shift your interest or spark that interest? And second of all, was there any particular either classes or organization activities from UCLA that like, 
extremely impactful during your transition, like from engineering to more like product management? Yeah, for sure. I think the thing that shifted was I realized that some of the best engineers, they look at a problem and they go to, how do I solve this problem? Whereas my mind always started with why. Before I could really go deep into how to solve this problem, I always took a step back and asked why. Why are we even solving this problem? Why does it matter? What does it mean for the customer? And I was that person in the room going all the way, pulling every thread to figure out why this is important. And after I answered the why, the how became obvious because, hey, this is the problem we're trying to solve. Of course, this is how we should approach it. So for me, that was always the big picture of thinking, always stepping back and saying, why does this matter? And as part of that, I became that one engineer that every salesperson wanted to bring in front of the customer. So every customer demo, every customer conversation that got technical, they would say, hey, we want someone from engineering and they would tap me on the shoulder. Before I know it, I was customer facing. I was talking to a lot of people and I realized I enjoy that. I really talking to customers, understanding the problem and bringing that to the table and saying, that's the problem we're going to solve. And the more I learned about it, I realized that's what product managers do. And I go do that for them. Yeah. So like from shifting that myself from the why, sorry, the how you build product to why you build product. And then that naturally lends itself to the role of a PM. It's responsible for a lot of like customer, translating customer requests into like actual product roadmap, right? Yep, exactly. And then you asked me another question, what helped during Anderson days? I think it was just a lot on the entrepreneurship side. Again, startups are so interesting on the technology side. I was in the entrepreneurship club. I was in a bunch of some technology and product management courses. Finance courses really helped. People underestimate Looks like you do a lot of marketing courses, but for me, it was a combination of marketing and finance courses that really helped because eventually it matters that you understand the business and how the business is going. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that context. So after finishing your MBA, you worked for about three years at VMware as a product manager for the cloud infrastructure division. More specifically, you own all aspects of the go-to-market strategy and execution for the entire software device storage portfolio. Reflecting back into your time there, what would you say to be some of your proudest product launches at VMware? Oh, for sure. It was this thing called Virtual SAN, vSAN as it's called today. It turned out to be one of the fastest growing products in VMware's history. It's interesting we're talking about VMware, but given all the news that's coming out. Back when I was there, VMware was owned by EMC. Since then, it's been owned by Dell. And now this talk of possibly Broadcom doing this. But why I was so proud about launching vSAN was at the time, EMC owned it. And we were, as a virtualization company, going into the storage market and obviously competing directly with EMC, the mothership. So there was, of course, the technology was really interesting. It was the first time ever that there was this virtual storage concept. It wasn't there anymore. It was completely software. And software-defined means there's absolutely, I told you my early part of my career, I worked on storage arrays, and now I got the opportunity to make it completely software-focused. So there's no storage array, there's nothing that you can touch and feel, it's completely software, but then it takes a bunch of servers and turns it to it. So I thought it was fascinating, it was first of its kind, category-defining, after we did it, a bunch more other such software products were released. So it was the first of its category, first of its kind. And why I'm proud of it is there were a lot of pricing challenges. There were a lot of even political waters to navigate because EMC had a bunch of concerns. Wait, is VMware now going to come and compete with us? 
And we had to really find our positioning, find a way to not compete and actually still go to market in the most profitable way for VMware. Yeah. So you mentioned pricing and political navigation. That yep. Just that yeah. Politically navigating so that we find the right positioning in the market. So pricing and positioning, I would say, were the two biggest challenges. Apart from, mm-hmm. of course, technology itself was very complex. But how do you take this really complex technology, price it so that you monetize it, and then position it in the right way so that it becomes the product that everybody wants to adopt? Yeah. And you so mentioned that sort of transition from hardware to Polish software. And this is, I suppose, in the 2010, this is when cloud computing started gain exactly. adoption, mainstream adoption. Exactly right. That's exactly when cloud computing was completely taking off. And this was a time for us to say, hey, instead of just selling hardware, how do we make everything more software defined? Yeah. And from a sort of career development skill set, did you, did you learn any sort of very important lesson being for your first job as a product manager? Yeah. yeah I'm curious, like, what are some skill set that you acquired during this three years at VMware as a PM? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was mostly around the go-to-market because how do you take a category-defining product to market? It's a very difficult challenge because creating a category is not fun, to be honest. People think that you all want to create a category, but creating a category is very hard. That was, I think, the biggest learning that avoid creating categories unless you absolutely have to. And if you do have to create a category, how do you go about it? And that's where all the nuance was. And that's what I really learned. How do you go create a category? Thanks for sharing that. I think that's also might be quite relevant as we talk about real-time streaming later on, because that's also another category. And I'm sure you can get a lot of your learnings from your time at VMware to, to your current role as well. Yeah, for sure. That's exactly what I learned here. That Again, we don't want to create a category. At Rockset, what we're doing right now, real-time analytics, it's quickly becoming a category, and I think we have been instrument shaping it, and yet we are happy that there's some competition in there. We're happy that we're not a category of one, because that's not even a category. It makes a lot of sense, yeah. So you, after your time at VMware, you then join a startup, a nested virtualization startup called Ravelo System as the VP of marketing. And in particular, during your three years at Ravelo, you grew the business from zero customer to a successful multi-million dollar acquisition. So can you unpack how you build a successful inbound marketing engine from scratch to drive the rapid growth of the startup? Yeah, I think this was very interesting for me coming from VMware. For those of you who have done B2B, you recognize that until around that point in the industry, there was a lot of standard B2B selling. You had a sales team, you found the customer, you went and made a case and you sold to them. Around that time when I was at Rovello is when the way people buy, it was completely transforming. There was no more this feeling of, oh, I'm going to buy what is being sold to me. It was more, I want to discover products on my own. So today, most customers are very savvy. They have direct access to their peers. They have direct access to try things before they buy. And this was what I think really changed. So at Rovello, what I did was completely change the way we went to market and went 100% inbound. What does that mean? Inbound means we put out a lot of content. We worked with a lot of influencers. We worked with the people who understood our software and used that to create this pull in the market and create this movement where people were coming to us. They were trying the software on their own. And the product 
you have for the inbound to be successful, it's not enough to just generate inbound demand. It's also important to have a product that can support that inbound demand. That is self-service, a product that has free trials, a product that's very easy to try and get started and get value. So really combining that kind of inbound marketing motion with a self-service product. Today, it's called product-led growth. Back in the day, this product-led growth term was not yet there, but that's essentially what we did. Yeah. Okay. I guess maybe circling back a little bit before that, why did you decide to join a startup coming from VMware, I suppose? That might be also like, a little context in your decision. Startup itch, I think if you're in the valley, it's hard not to go scratch that itch. So it was just a matter of, I happened to know some, one of the investors who had invested in this company. And again, this is the advantage of being in the valley. I met them through a personal network. They were telling me about this really interesting company, put me in touch, told me to go chat with them. And the more I spoke to them, I liked what they were doing. And I was really happy at VMware. I had no reason to leave except... This was an opportunity that was very interesting and exciting. So I went and pursued it. It was not me wanting to leave VMware. It was just an opportunity I couldn't refuse. That, I'm sure that's just not like an easy decision. Do you have that sort of entrepreneurial drive to, to see how to do a new function from scratch? And he also mentioned about that sort of marketing initiative coupled with self-serve motion for the product. And I believe that the customer of Ravelo is mainly the developer and the enterprise IT community. Was there anything that you learned about marketing and selling to those cohorts of practitioners from your time at Traveler? Yeah, I think the technical audience, again, I came from a technical background, so I really related to the technical audience and just have to treat them with a lot of respect. They're very savvy. I think they're so used to all sorts of marketing bullshit. The thing that stood out to them was if you're honest and you're transparent and you have all the technical details that they really need to know, that's what spoke to them. And that's what we did, which is understand the audience, understand how they like to buy, understand what they like to learn and provide them the content that helps them get there. And then they, A, trust the brand because, hey, here's a brand that says it like it is. And B, we also got great word of mouth and that's how it spread because, again, in that era this was what was starting to happen. People had direct access to their peers. You could go see the review. You could go talk to your peers. You no longer had to wait for that salesperson and trust that salesperson. You could directly talk to your peers in all sorts of forums online. And that's what we did. We built an amazing product and a trustworthy brand. And that's what worked. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. Now, you spent roughly about three years at Travelo and it got acquired by Oracle towards mid-2016. And after that acquisition, you briefly spent about one year as the senior director of information for Oracle's cloud portfolio. And I believe that your focus at Oracle is on some of the more pioneering technologies like AI, LT, and, and blockchain, right? So yeah, would you mind going over your experience at Oracle? Oracle was an interesting experience. Going from a very small startup to such a big company, I was quite a shock to the system, I have to say. What I found was interesting was... I spent the first few months just helping to integrate the company, get the acquisition off the ground and all of that. But then I got the opportunity to go do some really interesting strategy work. And what I found was really interesting was things like blockchain, AI, IoT. In a company like Oracle, it touches so many different products. So this was my first experience doing something called portfolio product management, where I'm no longer just thinking about one product and its roadmap. 
But I'm looking at a portfolio of products and saying, how do I bring AI or Oracle's AI vision into these different products? And again, the challenge is, I think, in a big company, it's very easy to go top down and say, oh, you have to incorporate AI in these products, which I think is the wrong way to go about it. Instead, going to every single product, going deep into the customer problems and saying, what are the problems that these customers have that could be solved through AI? And really applying the new technology to an existing product to make that better. And that was really hard to do, to be honest, because every product already had its own roadmap. It had a lot of different challenges it's working on. So to go in there and say, how do we now bring an AI lens to your roadmap and convince a bunch of different product managers that this is the way of the future and influencing those roadmaps, that was very hard to do. I see. So the users, the customer, the, the, you in this case, like your other product mm-hmm. manager? Yeah, exactly. It's basically bringing AI, blockchain, IoT concepts into existing Oracle products. Okay. I see. And I suppose you probably learn a lot again about like just navigation, like big organization politics and getting buy-in and stakeholders, things of that nature. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's all about people. And I would go back to what I was saying about Ravello and building a trustworthy brand. It was again about working with people and saying, hey, how do you put their interests first? When people hear the word politics, it always sounds like you're doing something dirty because you always associate dirty in politics as a common thing. But the way I found it to work in Oracle was, yes, there's always some of that. There are always going to be people who are out for their own interests in any company and you can't really do anything about that. But the thing that really appeals to everyone is if you go put their interests first. So again, like I was talking about AI, IoT, blockchain, what I found was most useful is to go in and talk to each product manager, understand their roadmap and see what are the challenges they're facing and how can they leverage some of the other things on AI, blockchain or IoT to help them make their product better, faster. If I put their interests first, instead of just coming in and trying to somehow convince them to do what I want them to do, yeah. that's what really works. Yeah, politics sounds like how do you get what you want, but I think it's actually the opposite. Politics Navigating politics is figuring out what they want and helping them get what they want. And that's how you build influence. That's how you build trust. And if you help other people win, then that's again how you build more trust and more influence. Because now they're saying, hey, this person is actually helping me do my job better or helping me become a great PM in this company. So the end of the day, it's really about helping other people. It's really like that sort of empathy, right? Use empathy and understand the pain point and working, building a solution tailored for that pain point. You spent about one year at Oracle and since December 2017, you have been a founding team member of Proxet, leading product management, product design, product marketing, demand gen, and branding efforts. So can you share the story behind the founding of the company? Yeah, it was really interesting. I was at Oracle. And a lot of the CDO, the chief data officer meetings, the CIO meetings that I was in, it was always the same question, which is, hey, we've invested in streaming technologies. We've invested in collecting a lot of data because data is so valuable. And the biggest problem they were all facing is how do you go from collecting the data to building an application? Because a lot of them were actually just collecting the data in real time and putting it into S3 or some sort of data lake. And S3, as we all know, is where data goes to die. So 
well, data is just sitting there. It's accumulating there. How do you use that to build an application? That was very hard to do. And almost every customer kept asking the same questions. And Oracle didn't have a great answer. I couldn't give them a great answer. So I was talking to startups to see how do we solve this problem? What are the startups doing? What's the ecosystem doing? How is everybody else approaching this problem? And this is when I met the Roxit, the other co-founders, Venkat and Dhruba, mm-hmm. who were coming out of Facebook. And they had solved this problem. If you think about Facebook, what is Facebook Newsfeed? Facebook Newsfeed is basically in real time, it's figuring out your user clickstream activity. So who, what are you clicking on? What are you commenting on? What are you liking? So it's getting all the user activity. And it's joining that with your historical data, stuff like who are your friends, stuff like what have you clicked on in the past? And then this is massive volumes of information coming in real time. It's joining all of this and making a decision on what is the next post to show you? What is the next post to show you? So this is really a data application that is using real-time data to make personalized recommendations on the next post that you should see. Mm -hmm. And they had done this at massive scale. And the way they did that was indexing. So they had some experience building the system and they were coming at it saying they want to bring this kind of technology to the masses. And I was coming here saying, I've heard the actual problems from the CDOs and the CIOs and where they're struggling, what applications they're trying to build. So that's how we put our heads together and rock set. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context. So it sounds like Venkat and Drupal really have that sort of technical expertise, meeting a system to scale. And then you really come in from a pain point, user pain point, customer pain point, hearing this issue streaming data from a lot of conversation at Oracle and then combine that with the technical voice view, stick together and decided to build Rockset, right? Yep, that's pretty much what happened. And Rockset, I think from the very early days, we knew that we wanted to do something to solve this problem around real-time analytics. And the technology has evolved since then. The core idea behind indexing has evolved. We've built this really interesting thing called converged indexing. We've built our own query engine. But all of that was driven by that initial pain that we saw in the industry that how do you go from data to application? That is just too hard and we want to make it very easy. So yeah, let's talk more about the technology. So I got a chance to go over a couple of white papers and landing pages on Rockset website. So Rockset is a real-time analytics database for building data-intensive application scale. So first of all, would you mind explaining the two concepts of real-time analytics and data applications for the initiative? And then secondly, I guess that's just related to the previous questions. Like how can one view data applications that power by real-time analytics? Yeah, great question. So yeah, Rockset is a real-time analytics platform built for the cloud. What does that mean? Let's unpack it. So real-time analytics is basically when you have data coming in real time, it could be in any shape. It could be JSON, Parquet, Avro, what have you. It could be coming from anywhere. It could be coming from a Kafka stream. It could be coming from a Kinesis stream. It could be coming from your database, say your Oracle database or your Mongo or your Dynamo database as a CDC stream. All of these are real-time streams and real-time analytics is taking that real-time data, analyzing it as it occurs. So the difference between batch analytics and real-time is that in batch, which is what warehouses do, you take the data, prepare it, transform it in batches, and then you load it into your warehouse. Whereas in real-time analytics, you don't wait, you don't do multiple jobs and batch jobs to eventually load it into something. As the data comes in real time, you analyze it, which means you should be able to write 
queries that can show you anything that happened even a few seconds ago, it's already reflected in your queries. So that's what real-time analytics really is. And when I say real-time analytics built for the cloud, specifically what that means is, if you think about what Snowflake did a decade ago, it was fantastic, right? They took batch analytics the way it was done in the past and said, hey, here's how we reimagine it for the cloud. Compute storage separation, being able to scale compute fast, scale storage fast, all of that makes sense. But in our case, it makes even more sense because think about real time. It's very fluid. It's actually almost something that you have to do in the cloud. The time data, it can be highly variable. You can have streams that are maybe a few Mbps and suddenly it goes to many terabytes a day. You can't do that in the data center. How quickly can you possibly add servers when that happens? But in the cloud, you can just scale it out to hundreds of CPUs if you need it to. And as soon as the data stream becomes small again, you can scale it down to just a few CPUs. And that's the beauty of doing this in the cloud because real-time data is very fluid. And on the query side, it's the same thing. So what we did was we built this purely for the cloud. It's cloud-native. It's very efficient and it really, I think, takes advantage of cloud economics. A lot of people ask me, why cloud native? Why won't you do this on the data center? And our answer is that if you think about it, in the cloud, whether you rent one machine for 100 minutes or 100 machines for one minute, it costs the same. So why should anything be slow? Yeah. So the way we've done it is you have to build algorithms that are so paralyzed, almost embarrassingly paralyzed, so that if something happens and you get a lot of data coming in, you can scale to hundreds of CPUs very quickly and bring it down very quickly. And you cannot do that in a data center. We do this in the cloud so that we can make it very cost efficient. Yeah. Planet it from the get-go. And I suppose like the reason why it's so cost efficient is like with technology, it's not like it separates compute and starch. And then that's why you're expensive, the cost the same. And that's why you process with you with that, with that in mind. Exactly. So it's the cloud efficiency. But there's another very interesting thing for the data practitioners out there. I think they'll appreciate this. If you think about a warehouse, which does batch analytics, what is it optimized for? It op optimizes for storing a lot of data. That's why it's called a warehouse, right? It's like, if you think about the old world, it's like a Costco. It has a lot of stuff. And you pack it away as efficiently as you can. But every time you try to retrieve it, it costs you a lot. So the cost per gig might be low, but the cost per query is very high in a warehouse. So warehouses were optimized or they were built for analysts running these long reports. And they ran them very infrequently. They ran them once a quarter or something like that. And that's great. That's the ideal use case for a warehouse. Analysts building dashboards and reports, you should build it on a warehouse. But you think about data applications, which was the second part of your question. What do data applications do? A data application is something that a developer builds. It's not an analyst, it's a developer. And developers do things like, say, personalization, delivery tracking, fraud detection. All of these are data applications. And for that, you retrieve a lot of data. It's not just about data storage. It's also about data retrieval. These are high QPS applications. There are a lot of queries per second, very low latency applications. They need the data to come back fast. 
So you need to really think about how easy and efficient is it to retrieve the data. And the old world of warehouses did not optimize for that. So whenever I find somebody building data applications on a warehouse, very quickly they find themselves with two problems. One is it's too slow because the queries take many seconds to come back. And two, it's too expensive because a warehouse is built for data storage, not for data retrieval. So the compute to retrieve that data becomes very expensive. So they find themselves with a massive, humongous compute bill on their warehouse, mainly because they are using the wrong tool for the job. So instead of optimizing for data retrieval, they've gone and optimized for data storage. And if you build data applications on warehouses, the clear symptom that you will see is that the queries are too slow and your compute is way too expensive. Thanks for sharing that context. And you actually written a blog post last year uh, explaining how to build their application Power Area Time Analytics that I'll be sure to include in the show notes. So anyone interested to learn more about what Trudy just mentioned could can go read the article and look more on some of these criteria that this massively successful data application view on the cloud have in common so they can adapt it for their own workflow. Talking a little bit about the actual Proxet product, Proxet takes a new approach to online data by bringing together alternative architecture schema-less ingestion, conversion indexing, and full-feature SQL. And some of these concepts you briefly alluded to in some previous answer. But yeah, could you mind explaining how the Rockset architecture is designed at a high level? Yeah, sure. I talked about data applications. The difference is that our developers are building data applications. And developers, you think about what kind of trade-offs you need to make for developers versus analysts. The interesting thing is our developers do a lot of experimentation and they iterate fast, right? So that means they always want to try new data sets. They want to experiment on different types of queries. And this means that the data engineering team is constantly challenged with how do I work with new types of data, different shape of the data? How do I work with new types of queries? And they're constantly trying to keep up with these new requirements that developers come up with. It's a funny story. There's this thing that people believe that the like button at Facebook, the thumbs up like button, they believe it was built in a day. But the reality is it was one of thousands of growth experiments that the growth engineering team did to figure out how to make the thing more engaging in real time. And how could they do all these experiments? Because they had a real-time analytics system on the back end that allowed them to do all these kinds of experiments that they said, hey, let's throw this data in, let's try this type of query and let's see what happens. So that's why we did schema-less ingest. So with Rockset, what you can do is bring in new data sets and it does not take days or months to go build these real-time data pipelines. You can bring in a new data set in minutes because it's completely schema-less ingest. You just point Rockset at your data and the data comes in and you start writing SQL queries on it. So we took away all that burden of having to go define the schema, having to go to all these transformations, even to just load the data. We took away all of that burden. And then on the other side, again, when you're thinking about developers, what is the one programming language that all developers know? That's SQL. So we really wanted to give SQL access on top of this, unlike something like Elasticsearch or something that might ask you to learn their own language. We said, no, you have to be able to ask simple questions in SQL. And to do that with schema-less ingest was very hard. So this is what's interesting. We take JSON, nested JSON, Avro, Parquet, and within seconds, 
you can start writing SQL as if somebody went in and structured the data for you, but they didn't. It's all automatically done by the system as part of the indexing that we actually do. Yeah, thanks for explaining the technical details behind schema ingestion and full-feature SQL. And also one note about this concept of converge indexing that you already mentioned. Can, yeah, could you mind going over a little bit on the details of what it is and how does it compare to like previous indexing approaches? Sure, yeah. I think it's really interesting. If you think about Google, how does Google give you results within milliseconds? It's indexing, right? They go index the entire World Wide Web and give you results within milliseconds. So it's very similar to that, except what Google does is search indexing. What we did was we took it a step further and combined the search indexing with other concepts like columnar stores to come up with this new thing called a converged index. And what does a converged index do? If you go back to what I was talking about, a warehouse versus indexing, there's a big difference. A warehouse optimizes for storage. So it compresses your data and tries to optimize for storage. What we optimize for is data retrieval. So we make a different trade-off, which is the right trade-off for data applications, which is we'll index all the data, we'll index all the fields so that any query that you ask, it's always easy and quick to retrieve the data. So that's what conversion indexing is. It's basically us combining a search row and columnar index into a new type of index called the converged index that allows you to get very fast, very compute efficient queries. This is why when we work with customers, the first instinct, I think over the years, people have been trained to think that real time is expensive. First instinct is, oh, this might be expensive. But once they start using Roxanne, they find that oftentimes they have cut their bill in half. So they're actually saving money. They've gone from batch to real time. So they're getting faster queries. They're getting fresher data, but also they're saving money in the long term because the compute bill was cut in half simply by making the right trade-off. So that is what conversion indexing does. It just stores the data a little differently so that your queries are faster and more compute efficient. Yeah, thanks for really going over the details of motivation and sort of both the why and the how of the features, how it works. So you been quite vocal about this concept of modern real-time data stack and it's really what Rockset is building and is powering for. Can you dissect the technology requirements and the key layers of the modern real-time data stack? Sure. The modern real-time data stack, it's a few things are same. If you think about the modern stack, right? It has to be in the cloud, has to have SQL. So these two are fundamental to your data stack. Go cloud native and make sure it speaks SQL for interoperability with other systems. But the thing that's different about the real-time data stack is that you really use the right tool for real-time. In this case, you don't do batch ETL. So trying to do batch ETL and then putting it into a real-time database just doesn't make sense. But then you really think about what's the best way to stream data in. Example, Confluent is fantastic. Confluent, Kafka, Amazon, Kinesis, these are all great ways to stream data in. You can also tap into CDC streams. So things like Debezium, Stream are out there. You can use these tools to stream CDC or change data capture from your database. That's part of how you ingest data. And then if you think about any data stack, you ingest, transform, store, and analyze your data. So then you ingest data in real time in the cloud. 
And then you transform data in real time as well. This is why, again, at Rockset, once we've ingested, we allow you to do real-time SQL transformations. Oftentimes, you want to maybe drop a few fields. Maybe you want to aggregate some of the data as it comes in. So all of these things are ingest-time transformations. You can do this with dbt. dbt is a really popular tool for transformations. And then you store data. In our case, we really see Rockset as a place to store real-time data because you can analyze it in real time. And as you analyze it, you want to build some dashboards on top. You want to build the different visualizations on top. And again, having SQL, this is the advantage. You can use your favorite SQL visualization tool. If you want you know, Grafana, Tableau, Preset, what have you. You definitely need some sort of tool on top. But the most fun part for us personally is that we oftentimes find it's not just a dashboard. In the real-time stack, it's a data app. We give SDKs. We work with machine learning and other ways for you to actually build applications on this real-time data. And that's the interesting part. So a lot of people are actually building applications on top of us. They're doing fraud detection. They're doing anomaly detection. They're using that to trigger alerts and trigger other automation, which is much more interesting than a dashboard, which humans don't really like looking at dashboards. You'd much rather have a program that monitors it for you and then comes and tells you something went wrong than having to go and stare at the dashboard all day long. Thanks for sharing that context. Data ingestion, data transformation, data storage, and then data application slash API layers for real-time analytics slash machining purpose. Exactly. And Rockset created cover that sort of storage component while providing API access for downstream stage of the data development lifecycle. Exactly. And there's an article that you wrote on the new stack that covered the modern real-time data stack that I'll be sure to put that into the show notes for anyone who are interested in learning more on some of the technicality of what Struity is to talk about. And I suppose a very important thing that you have to think about is interoperability between different tools within the stack, right? So based on a little bit of my reading, Roxas has partnered with a fair amount of other tools in the data ecosystem such as Confluent, Tableau, MongoDB, and Ritu. How do you see the role of partnerships fit into Rockset's product strategy? It's all about, again, what does a customer want? What does a customer need? If you think about the problem that most people have today, it's how do you build a data stack that really works well together? So it's an end of the day, it is a stack. It's very important to remember that as from a customer's standpoint, they need to do all of these things, the job to be done is not just one piece of the stack, it's the entire stack. So it's important that any data company really thinks about the whole stack and works well with other pieces of the stack. So then that makes the job of the customer easier. So from a product strategy standpoint, that's really why it's important. We want to make it easy for the customer. We want to make it so that they have end-to-end visibility into their stack. They have a stack that works well together that they can optimize and tune for themselves. And then from a go-to-market strategy standpoint, again, it makes sense for us. There are other partners in the space who are solving the same problem. Mm. And we all want to help customers move from batch to real time. So how do we join forces? How do we go to market together so that we can accelerate the transformation in the industry of this whole batch to real time movement that's happening? Yeah. It's really based on customer needs and helping them less hands-on on beating everything up the stack on their own and then seeking the right partner to 
cover the crunch stack. Exactly. Did you learn anything, I guess, like in terms of partnership, there's a lot of tools in the data ecosystem. There's a lot of potential partners to collaborate with. Can you share a little bit about sort of your methodology in terms of just like the partnership playbook? Like how do you identify partners with joy value proposition that, you know, both Rockset and the partner can benefit from? Yeah. So it comes from really understanding the customer's job to be done. If they're trying to build application X, then fully understanding what are the different pieces of the puzzle that they need to build application X. And that's how we really come up with the entire stack and say, hey, they need to ingest data. Again, it's very simple. For databases, it's to ingest data, transform data, store data, and analyze data. So understanding the lifecycle end-to-end and saying what are the different products that they need to bring together to make this happen. And then if you want to make it easier for them, we go directly to that vendor and go work with them. But the way we identify the best vendor to work with, it's very much driven by customer demand. Customer comes to us and says, hey, we've evaluated, say, reverse ETL, evaluated a couple of products, and we want product X. They're already telling us to go integrate with product X. So we're listening to the customers. We're really following where the market is taking us versus just putting darts on the board. It's always driven by customers saying, this is the job we're trying to do. And this is the vendor that we'd like to use for, say, ingestion, for visualization, and then making sure that we work well with that ecosystem. Thanks for sharing that context. I guess just really that part is like, how do you see Barrow or Rockset? I guess the data stack is probably going to be quickly evolving as a time passed. And how do you see Rockset contribute to part of that evolution? Yeah, I think we're going to do two things. One is we're going to accelerate this evolution from batch to real time. And two is how we're going to do it, which is we're going to make it much more easy and affordable to do that, to analyze your data in real time. We're finding is that, I'll give you an analogy. Think about 10 years ago, how many things did you get shipped to you in two days? Did you do two-day shipping for everything? Why not? Expensive, right? Technology's not there. Yeah, are you really going to pay... I don't know, $60 to ship that thing, you know, in a two-day shipping. No, for the most part, we said, no, thank you. But today we want two-day shipping for everything because it's possible. It's affordable. It's easy. Of course, I want two-day shipping for everything. Mm -hmm. So really what happens if you make it easier and affordable, then you realize that why should anything be slow when it can be fast? The only reason people are settling for slow is because fast seems too expensive, too hard, too complex. So then you settle for slow, which is batch in this case. And what we're finding is that once people realize how easy and affordable it is to do real time with Rockset, it really accelerates the number of use cases that they want to put on it. So those are the two things we see ourselves doing. One is just making real time so easy and affordable that anyone can do it. And two, as a result of that, the entire industry moving from batch to real time a lot faster. Yeah, so like putting real time analytics and application into the hands of more customers. Your customers, you rock set for a variety of use cases like logistic, gaming, personalization, customer engagement, and experimentation. Like these are the few things that are in, in the website. But yeah, can you provide a few examples of some of these use cases just for illustration? Yeah, I think there's so many fun use cases. This is what I love about real time is that today, the today's generation, especially when employees are demanding real time and customers are demanding real time. 
I'll give you an actual example. For example, one of our customers is this company out in Alabama that I think builds software for tracking cement mixers. It's fantastic, right? It's heavy construction. It's all the bridges and the roads and all the stuff that's being built out there. Well, those cement mixers that show up, they have to keep on spinning. So it makes a big difference if you can track it in real time, have it come to the construction site at exactly the right time, reroute it if the crew is running late, reroute it if the weather is bad. All of that is so important to them. And they use Rockset for all of that today. Why? Because their customers were demanding this. Their customers were saying, I want to be able to crack my cement mixer in real time and reroute it. And it's so hard for somebody like them to do what Facebook did because they don't have an army of data engineers at their disposal. They need to be able to figure out how to do this without, I don't know how many data engineers Facebook has, but at least more than a thousand. So this is where it's so interesting. Their customers demanded it and they gave it to them in half a day. They built this on Rockset. They thought it would take them six months. They came in half a day, their prototype was ready. And in one week, they shipped it to their customers. Their customers were delighted. And this is when it gets even more interesting. Very soon, their internal employees said, wait a minute, how is it that my customer knows where the truck is, but I don't? So very quickly, the employees demanded real time and they also moved all of their internal systems onto Rockset. And now both employees and customers are, can track what their business is doing in real time. And this is very typical of what we see. We see people, that was Command Alcon, by the way, the customer I was talking about was Command Alcon. We have another company called Seesaw that's doing tech. Very similar. They have these internal and user-facing applications that need real time. And what I generally see is that the most common use cases tend to be in all the industries that are already very digitized. Digitization and recommendations for e-commerce, very common. We have a customer called Ritual. It's a multivitamin company. They are disrupting the multivitamin industry with a digital-first approach, direct-to-consumer. And they use Rockside to personalize your multivitamin buying experience online. We see a lot of, you know, I talked about delivery, tracking, and logistics, and supply chain. We see a lot of gaming. And of course, gaming also, you can imagine, if everybody's buying swords, they want to tell you, buy a shield right now. And how do you do that? You need real-time analytics. Or if you're competing with your friend, they want to show you a leaderboard to tell you are just 10 points away from your friend right now. You can beat them with just 10 more points. And you need real-time analytics for that. Mm -hmm. These are all really good examples of where you need real-time analytics. And of course, fintech. I think fintech is a big use case for us. We see so much of like finance and fraud detection and one of the largest buy now, pay later companies. This company has thousands of, it's doing millions of transactions on its platform. In real time, they want to know if something went wrong. There's some anomaly. They want to catch it. Before Rockset, for the most advanced state-of-the-art system, it took them six hours to find out if something went wrong. With Rockset, they now have real-time anomaly detection. They can catch it in two seconds. Mm. And that means they've reduced risk by millions of dollars for their business. It sounds like the real time analytics is very universal and ubiquitous amongst a variety of industry. And it's definitely an exciting phase for, for Rockset to just catching more clients across the industry and keep fueling to, to grow the product. Yeah. Yeah. I think this trend is happening with or without Rockset. It is happening. People are so used to this. You step out of the airport. I just came back from a vacation and you just expect in Uber within two minutes, I should be able to press the button, see when the nearest Uber is and immediately get an Uber. So 
you're so used to this kind of instant experience. Of course, you're going to expect that in your daily life, whether you're an employee or a customer, you're going to demand that from everywhere. Absolutely. Let's take off your product hat and put on your co-founder hat. Hiring and building teams is a critical responsibility of any startup founding team. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about Roxas' mission and fit with Roxas' culture of diversity? Yeah, it's uh, always about the people. I think at the end of the day, you can talk about technology and product and everything else, but it's always about the people. A startup is all about people. And the way we attract the right people is that the first few hires make all the difference because they attract the next. The first five attract the next 50 who attracts the next 500. So we always keep our bar very high, bar on integrity, bar on the what people who've worked with them will say about them really matters. So we look for very high integrity people. We look for people that you can trust. And then we know that they will go bring in the next 50, 100 people that they can trust. That's really how we keep the culture really strong. But then we have this really strong emphasis on diversity. And diversity doesn't just mean gender diversity or racial diversity. It means diversity of thought. We look for people who think differently. We look for people who are not like anybody else on the team because they bring in different perspectives. And we actually value that. We value that somebody's looking at the problem from an angle that you or I may not be looking at it. We're always looking for people with a different perspective, a different experience, different background. Because that diversity of thought is how we build a great company. Yeah. I'm curious, how do you, how do you source and for a diversity of thought in, in, in your pipeline, your interview? We measure a pipeline. So we go through it and we have certain metrics that we look at. And if we find that, especially on the hires, we're not getting the mix that we're looking for, then we'll go back to the pipeline and say, hey, is the pipeline, does that have the right mix? And if it doesn't, then we'll go back and say, how do we source these candidates who don't look like or talk like the people who are already in the company? And that often means going right down to a campus recruiting, going to campuses that we might not have gone to in the past. It means even for experienced hires, working with our recruiting team to say, hey, make sure that you're screening the right way and not screening out people just because you think they may not be a good fit and making sure our screening processes are tight. And it's all about metrics. As long as you're measuring the right thing, you can keep improving along that dimension. And for us, diversity is a metric we care about. So we keep improving it and measuring it. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. And maybe just a follow up on that process a little bit. You, so you join as a founding team member, first very small team. And I suppose at this point, Rockset has grown a lot in the past four years or so. And I assume that you had done a lot of interviews for many of the highs, from founding highs to expert high from a various level. What did you learn about becoming an effective interviewer? Great question. I found that it's really important to have an open mind going in, not just during the interview, but even during the resume screening process. It's very easy to look at a resume and say, hey, this does not look like one of us or does not seem like one of us. And that I think is the biggest mistake. So the first thing is to really have an open mind. And the second one as part of the interview process as an interviewer, really trying to figure out what's their superpower because they might have a bunch of weaknesses, but they might have that one superpower that nobody else on the team has. And that's what we're looking for. So the biggest thing is, 
as an interviewer, I'm thinking, how do they come and complete my team? What superpower do they bring that the rest of my team does not have? And that, again, creates that diversity of thought, creates that what we call a T-shaped team, where it's not that everybody has the same strengths or everybody has the same weaknesses. They all have different strengths and different weaknesses, and we all make up for it, make up for others' weaknesses. They make up for others' strengths by forming a team that is coming in with very different superpowers. Yeah, to be open-minded, both at the interviewing and resume screening, and then identifying superpower the candidates, which I see and see how that complement the team we're trying to view. Yeah, because it's too easy to look for the weaknesses and try to focus on that. But the real question is, what are their strengths? What is that one superpower they bring to the table? And if that is not obvious, if they don't have one, that's a problem. Also for context, I also come across this article. You wrote in Fast Company on how startup can create a culture where women can win. And to be sure to put in the show notes as well, because I think there's a lot of more like a tactical level on how do you can build that culture. Well, that notion of diversity of thought that we talk about, then actually implement them in their respective environment. Yeah, because it's not enough to recruit diverse talent, you have to retain them. Means you have to create an environment where they at, they can shine and they can do their best work. Yeah. I think it's super important to create a culture where even if you do find great people and bring them in, can they thrive? How do you make an environment where they can win? Yeah. Perfect. Now, finding early adopters is notoriously challenging for any enterprise product. Stepping back into the first one or two years of John Rocks' journey, what challenges did your team have to overcome to find some of the early design partners and Lighthouse customers? Yeah, I think it was the focus. Like from the very beginning, we had this very strong focus on real time and solving, bringing this real time data stack to the customer. So what really helped us in the early days, finding the early adopters was our focus on this very narrow problem that we want to solve and then finding the customers where that pain is very urgent for them. So if they have that urgency, it's, and we have the right solution for that problem, that's how we iterated towards product market fit. And I wouldn't say that right off, yeah, off no bad, we had an amazing product that solved all the problems. No, we launched early. We launched with an MVP and we worked with early adopters who gave us amazing feedback, very valuable feedback, very valuable input. And work like design partners to really help us shape product. And how do we find those people? It's again by having that focus from the very beginning and saying no to a bunch of other customers or other problems that came along the way and said, that is an interesting problem, but we are not the best ones to solve it. Saying no to that and continuing to solve for the problem that we know we're uniquely positioned to solve. And we know it's a burning pain, burning need for the customers. So is it a big burning problem? Is it something that we can uniquely solve in a very creative way? And if you bring those two together, that's how we found our early customers. And that's how we iterated towards product market fit. For sure. I'm curious, how did you actually find the customers with that specific problem? Was that based on industry or based on your data team or sort of the size of the data engineering teams? Yeah. What are some of the, like, at a high level? So much about the, the size or anything. I think, in fact, early days, we really liked working with small teams because mm -hmm. the smaller the team, the faster they moved, the more, the more feedback we got and we could iterate faster with them. So 
we didn't really care about the size of the data engineering team as much. What we really cared about was, again, whether they're building data applications, whether they're trying to use real-time data. And we really went in from a use case standpoint. These are the kind of use cases that we're building for. Who is building low-latency applications? Where do we see the application of real-time? And again, coming from Facebook, we understood these kind of applications really well put that the good use and said, here are the kind of applications. And then which companies are building these kind of applications, whether it's small companies, small teams, data applications are easy to identify. And we really went and spoke to them and said, how are you building these applications? What does the stack look like? What are the problems you're facing? And here's, uh, as we understood their problems, we were able to go back to them and say, here's how we're going to address that. We're going to make it complete, completely schemaless. They told us one of the biggest problems is loading the data in. So we made it seamless. They told us querying the data is really hard. So we made it SQL and we worked with them as we learned more and more about their problems. Yeah. Really just starting with end destination. These are companies that want to build data application for their use cases and working backwards and then iterate through different components going on the journey, right? Yep. Yep. Really starting with the end in mind. And so if we don't know who we're building for, then what's the point, right? Yeah, for sure. So we talked a little bit earlier and you shared about all these different use cases and different industry that Roxas has been supporting and as real-time analytics become more critical, this growth is definitely anticipated. So throughout this sort of growth journey, what are the tactics that you have used to combine the power of product-led adoption with sales-driven growth for rapidly scaling the Roxas business? I think this is very close to what we touched on earlier, which is today people call it PLG or product-led growth, but it's really about making sure that you have a narrow focus on a, a very small set of problems that you uniquely solve and then creating that inbound demand so that those people can discover Rockset in their time of need. For example, we're doing real-time analytics, so we know if you're building data applications, what are the kinds of things that you're searching for? What you know, again, starting with the end in mind and saying, we understand the customers, we understand the pain that they're dealing with. So what do we think they're searching for on a day-to-day basis? They may not be searching for Rockset. They don't even know Rockset exists, but they might be Googling for other things. And we make sure we understand what is it that they're out there typing into Google on a daily basis and really working backwards from there and saying, now that we know what their journey looks like, how do we make sure that they discover Rockset at the right point in their journey? That's the inbound game. And then complementing that with the self-service product. We're cloud native. Our whole play is what we call surprising simplicity. Make it so simple that if you are struggling with something and you discover Roxanne, I have an internal metric that time to first query should be five minutes. So if you start a trial of Roxanne within five minutes, you can bring your data in, look at the schema and write your first query. Thanks for providing the context. And so your role is chief product officer and SV marketing. So you've been overseeing like all of this go-to-market motion, grow motion for all the product. Yeah. I'm curious, was it, how did the grow team or like the marketing team structure with Crossset? Was there any particular like pillars of grow marketing that the team is responsible for? Yeah, we have, we have some amazing marketers on our team who are really great athletes. And this is the whole point, I think, of growth marketing you have to be really good at a lot of different things. Not that, oh, here's one thing we're going to do and that's going to work for us. So we're very focused on, again, a few different things that we discovered along the way. We 
experimented, we tested, we were super data-driven. So how is the team structured is we think about a few different things. We think about inbound versus outbound. How do we generate inbound demand? And then as the sales team has grown, how do we support that outbound motion? And then even within inbound, there's a lot around different personas. How do we position and message and make sure that the right persona finds us at the right time and that we appeal to them based on who they are. So data architects might look for different things than a data engineer. And that person probably is Googling for different things and reading different content. So how do we make sure they find the right content that appeals to them at that particular time? Those are the kinds of things the inbound team really thinks about. So there's a lot of focus on inbound. And you talked about partners and we attach with partners. So how do we attach with some of the typical partners that we work with? Yeah, thanks for sharing that context. So talk about dealing with employees, dealing with customers, dealing with partners. And the last group that I want to touch on is investors. So Rockset has raised over $60 million in total funding to date from top tier VC firms such as Sequoia and Greylock. What fundraising advice could you give to fathers who are seeking the right investors for their startups? Again, I think it's all about the people. It looks like it's a brand name and all of that. And yes, brand names do help. We have Sequoia and Greylock and that does give us some instant credibility. That's great. But at the end of the day, for us, what mattered was both the people on our board, the people who invested, Jerry Chen and Mike Wernal, are people that we know from previous lives. So it's people that we know, we trust, and have been great partners. So we have fantastic alignment with them. They believe in the same vision that we have, and they've been extremely supportive of how we've been building the company. So I worked with Jerry Chen back at VMware. I think Venkat and Dhruba worked with Mike Wernal back at Facebook. So these are people that we know from our previous lives, and that's been very helpful. So the only advice I have for founders is as you're doing your fundraising, yes, it matters to have a brand name, but it really matters to have the right person on your board. So focus on who is the investor. Do you connect with them? Do they believe in your long-term vision? They support you as you go on this crazy journey. You emphasize that really good part, just like for both of these partners, the job funding team has already has an established relationship from years before and only until now that, that they, they make the investing decision. Fundraising is a decade-long marathon, definitely not a sprint. Yep, exactly. So finally, reflecting on the arc of your career, how would you describe the evolution of product marketing and go-to-market strategy in the past decade? I think it's completely changed from the days that I saw at VMware to what I'm seeing companies do today. It's completely transformed and it's transformed in two ways. It's transformed because A, customer buying behavior has changed. Customers no longer buy like they did in the past. Today, it's in the past, it was very much centralized IT teams that kind of decided what they were going to buy after doing these long POCs. Today, it's very decentralized. The power is in the hands of the developers. Developers go, they like to try, they do free trials, they make their own, they make up their own mind on what you know they like and why. So there's a lot of decentralization that's happened. And I think that's good. I think that's great because you no longer need to have this massive sales force, this massive sales team that is solely at the whims of the buyer. Today, the sales team can go directly to the person who's consuming the technology. That is a huge shift. So our sales team is also 
great at working with the technical personas, the users, the developers, the data engineers, the data architects, and that is so important. So that's changed. I think the way people buy has gone from these centralized IT teams making decisions to the decentralization, the smaller teams, the developers, the data engineers choosing what's best for their use case, which is great. And the second thing that's changed is data. We talk about real time. Now, suddenly marketers have so much access to data. Everything has gone digital. Everything we do at Rockset is very data-driven. Our entire marketing team is very data-driven. We, of course, talk through Rockset. Yeah. Rockset on Rockset. So there's a lot of internal real-time data, real-time alerts. So we know what's happening through the buyer's journey. We know when there's all this intent data. We know when people are researching something. We know when they have a problem. We know when they're looking to buy. So marketers have to be super savvy about using that data and showing up at the right place at the right time. Thanks for sharing the, those, those insights. The, the decentralization of uh, product and sales led adoption plus the power of data to make that adoption easier. So shortly at this point of our conversation, I wanted to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then you can give quick answers for the listeners. Okay. Number one, name three people in the broader data and analytics community whose work you admire? I would say one is Bar Moses from Monte Carlo Data. The other one is Jay Krebs from Confluent. I think what Confluent's done for streaming has been fantastic and Jay has been a driving force behind that. And the last one is slightly different from these two founders, actually. Comes to mind is Alex Debris. He is a consultant, independent consultant. But what I love about his work is he deeply understands DynamoDB and he's become the go-to expert. And he's even written a book about DynamoDB. And I really appreciate that. I think becoming an expert in one thing and going so deep that he can write a book about, that's amazing. So yeah, these are the three people that come to mind. Number two, what is one book that you recommend for people to cultivate product-centric mindset? Oh, that's a great one. It's something I already touched on. I talked about job to be done a few times. And that's a whole framework, the job to be done framework. It was built by Clayton Christensen and the book to read there is, it's really interesting. It's called Competing Against Luck. And what it basically says is don't, you know, don't allow luck to dictate your roadmap. You really have to understand the job to be done. So it's, it's a fabulous book. And I think any product manager should start the journey there. Finally, imagine that you could send out a single tweet to all the early stage product managers on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Early stage product managers. For early stage product managers, I would say focus, 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 focus. It is so easy to get pulled in many different directions, especially in the early stages. And the job of the product manager is to really focus and say, what is that one thing and one thing only that we're going to be great at? So don't be seven out of 10 on five things. Be 10 on 10 for one thing, and customer will always buy you for that one thing. Brilliant. I think it's a great way to end our conversation. Truly, I really enjoyed talking with you today, learning about your background earlier, working in engineering, your transition into shifting more focused on the business technology, your time at Israeli, going to a business school, your multi year career journey at VMware, Ravelo System. Oracle, and now at Rockset, building a streaming database, real-time analytics platform. 
for the modern real-time data stack. A lot of interesting thought leadership regarding product development, product marketing, partnership, hiring, finding the right customers, and fundraising as well. And I'm definitely excited to see more content coming out from Rockset as real-time analytics has become more and more critical for organization of all size and shape across the broad range of use cases. I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to take a look and follow up and explore more some of the work that you put out as well as some of the exciting new product launch and content and community initiative coming out from Rockstar. I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. I really enjoyed this too and appreciate you having me on here. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.